This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. Hi, everyone. I'm Bev Jones, and this is Just About Work, where we talk about everything that might have an impact on your career. Today, we're talking with Julius Pryor III. He's a retired Navy captain. He's a certified Navy leadership instructor, and he's known as an innovative, goal-focused executive. And Julius has been the chief diversity officer at five global companies. In his book, Thriving in a Disruptive World, Julius makes it clear that he's driven by outcomes, and he says that the old diversity approach of counting heads in the workforce just isn't effective. These days, Julius is thriving as a consultant, and he'll talk with us about how he's helping companies to understand that effective diversity and inclusion efforts have to be aligned with broader corporate goals. Julius, you've had a distinguished corporate career, and now you're thriving as a, as a corporate consultant. But it sounds like the foundation for your understanding of leadership and team building really began before your corporate days, back in the Navy. Is that true? Yes. Um, it's, it's, um, definitely, it was definitely a formative time in my life. And um, I'll tell you a little bit about that. Um, when you think about the military services, um, each of the branches of the services has its own sort of unique culture. Um, the army has to, has to coordinate much more closely. Um, the left flank has to move, uh, with the right flank and the center. So they have to be sure they're coordinating their movements. Now I'm painting with a broad brush, but, but yeah, go with me here. The air force is the newest of the services having come out of the army after world war II, So they're the least tradition bound. And the Marine Corps, which is sort of part of the Navy and also sort of uh, has some 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 similar um, characteristics of the Army, um, is the smallest of the services, so they always feel like they're put upon and have the least resources, and it's an us-against-them kind of attitude. The Navy is the expeditionary branch of the military. It's forward-deployed and has been throughout its history. I mean, think about it, to, to be on a, on a wooden ship that was powered by sail in the early days of our Navy, far away from your home base, far away from your home port, um, the commanding officer of a ship has to really almost act like the supreme authority. But that authority also brings with it a lot of, um, a lot of weight. And so one of the things that we learned early on as Navy officers is that you can delegate authority but not responsibility. And ultimately, Navy officers are very big on taking responsibility for things that go well and also when they're faced with challenging circumstances that don't quite go right. So that whole adage about responsibility and being able to delegate authority but always taking responsibility is is something that's important. The other thing that was really important was the importance of teams. And if you think about some of the some of the subcultures within the Navy, that whole thing about teams is critically important. If you think about the Navy SEALs, the special warfare component of the Navy, um, 
they have to operate in such an intrinsic and connected way that I almost refer to them as, in fact, I do, and I talked about this in my book, I refer to them as a hyper-collaborative team, which means that they, uh, they're so in sync that they can almost finish each other's sentences. And a lot of that comes from the fact that you know that everyone on the team has gone through the same training, has gone through the same kinds of, kinds of developmental approach, and that anyone can step up at any time. Say there's a casualty or someone um, is, is hurt in the course of a mission. Anyone can step up to lead at any time and then can fall back into the middle of the team at any point to take on the role that they were in previously. So a lot of this comes from that, that thing that I mentioned initially, which is always taking responsibility. And the other thing comes from this elasticity and this flexibility of being agile at all times and being able to shift to that is such a graphic image that I don't think most of us actually think about what it must be to be a leader in a boat in the middle of the ocean far away. Now, these days, of course, there's lots of communication, but in the foundation of the Navy, people could be on their own for weeks and months, and everything depended on that on that right. leadership and that team support for the leader. So it really illustrates what it takes. I mm-hmm. In your book, um, and I'll mention the name, uh, Thriving in a Disruptive World, Six Critical Concepts for Navigating the 21st Century. It really, uh, you are mm-hmm. very clear on your, um, your brand of leadership. And I, I thought you had some very compelling points to make. And actually, my favorite chapter was the chapter on hyper-collaborative teams. Can, can you... Um, Share some ideas about, um, if you're not in the Navy, you don't have all those years of culture, how do you start building that kind of team in maybe the corporate world or in a university? And, and, and what are some of the characteristics of a, of a hyper-collaborative team that really gets the job done? Yeah, well, the, the, there's one other adage that sort of comes from, from the military, but in particular the Navy, um, and that's transparency. Um, oftentimes, there seems to be an opaqueness, depending on the culture of certain corporations, but there's transparency in the Navy, even down to the fact that everyone knows exactly what your salary is. It's posted online. Um, if you're a lieutenant who's been in the Navy over six years, this is what your salary is, and this is what, what your special pays are. So there's this transparency and also a transparency about exactly what's required to go from lieutenant to Lieutenant Commander to Commander, and and I think that we're seeing more and more corporations going towards that kind of transparency in terms of of tone and in terms of culture, so that people um, have clarity around what the goals and objectives are. The, the other example that I use in the in the book is um, I talk about a NASCAR pit crew, but I also talked about the New England Patriots. Now, I know some of the people listening may not be Patriot fans. But when you think about the, and even if you factor in, in the things that people deride about them, which is, well, they cheated, or, or the referees are easier on them, or the, league, the, the division they're in is easier, they, they've still been one of the most successful franchises in the National Football League since, since the year 2000. They finished first or second um, in, their, in their AFC um, um, 
division, and they won five Super Bowls, seven AFC championships. That They've been in the Super Bowl ten times. That's the record for the most Super Bowl appearances. So even if you factor in some of the times that they may have been lucky, to have that kind of record means that they're doing something unique. And I really filtered it down. I titrated it down and analyzed them, and I found ten key characteristics that, that I saw in them, but I see those 10 characteristics anytime I see hyper-collaborative teams. The first is that they innovate and are willing to take risk. Um, the second is the, the thing that I talked about clarity. There's clarity of goals and clarity of objectives. Oftentimes, I've noticed in corporations, we're not clear about what it is we're there to do. What are we trying to accomplish this quarter, this year, for the next six years? Clarity of goals and objectives actually helps quite a bit when people are trying to move forward. Then the third thing I've noticed is that there's calm and consistent leadership, regardless of what things are occurring in the external environment, uh, regardless of of, um, what's happening in terms of the marketplace. They're calm and consistent. I was speaking to an insurance company um, just a few weeks ago, and they were concerned about their culture and about what the future was going to hold. And, and there was almost a panic in, in terms of the executives that I was talking to. And I said, wait a minute, think about it. You all have been around, you can trace your founding back 161 years. If you've been around that long, it means that you've been doing some things right. Of course, you need to make some adjustments. Of course, you need to think about what challenges you're going to face. But don't forget about the fact that you've existed successfully for 161 years. How many people can say that? And so they've sort of forgotten about um, being calm and having consistent leadership, which they've had. The other thing, which is the number four thing that I looked at, is there's mentoring and reverse mentoring in hyper-collaborative organizations. The people who are experienced in the organization are always taking the newer entrants to the workforce under their wings and being sure that they're listening to them to learn what they can from these newer entrants to the workforce. The fifth thing is they communicate clearly and concisely. They're very clear about what they're there to do, and they're concise when they talk about what they're there to do. There's not a lot of flowery language. It's very much to the point. The sixth thing I notice is that they shape a culture that is supportive of success, and they actually tell people in the organization, we don't just want you to succeed, we expect you to succeed. And they're sort of sending that message all the time. The seventh thing I noticed, Beverly, is that there's discipline around details, around training, and around development. And they want to be sure that as many people in the organization get that in terms of development. They want to continue to develop people. The eighth thing is that they analyze the competition and they're constantly doing that so that they can exploit weaknesses in their competitors to their own advantage. The ninth thing I notice is that there is historical perspective, much like the insurance company I just gave you as an example. They understand their roots. They understand where they've come from, and they understand those pieces of their culture that they need to hold on to and the pieces of the culture that they may need to make adjustments to in light of contemporary times. The tenth thing, and, and this might be the most important thing, is team results trump. Team results are always held up in lieu of individual accomplishments. And if you think about the New England Patriots, 
Tom Brady, who's the leader of the team, who's the quarterback, um, is is a star well outside of the realm of his individual sport. You know, with with his celebrity wife, he's really considered a celebrity, and yet he's managed to, to more or less keep his feet on the ground um, and stay focused on what he's there to do as a football player. So he still considers himself a member of the team, even in light of all of the celebrity attention that he gets and is able to focus on team results in lieu of his individual accomplishments so that they're always doing what's in the best interest of the team or the organization. So, so yeah, there are all teams have, have their faults and have their challenges. But when you think about those ten things I just mentioned, those are the things that I've seen in hypercollaborative Julius, I, that's a terrific list. And in a minute, I want to talk about the sort of outcome focus, because I think that's really part of of your brand. Mm -hmm. But before we get to that, you mentioned mentoring and reverse mentoring. And I this is something I've thought about a lot. My observation is that when mentoring is really successful, those relationships tend to be Mm -hmm. reciprocal. Each person is a learner yeah. as well as a teacher. And that in thinking about mentoring in our organizations, with so many divides between disciplines and among age groups and in the context of, of diversity and inclusion, everybody can learn from everybody. And maybe we need to, to think about mentoring as being um, more uh, partnering. And But when you uh, talk about your uh career in the Navy, did you have that kind of mentoring, or what kind of mentoring were you thinking of? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, When I reported to my first ship, I had to meet the ship in the Philippines, and um, there was a typhoon on the way into the island, and all the ships had to get underway. Um, You don't want to have your ship in port when there's a storm approaching so we were skirting the edge of this of this typhoon, and I remember the name of it to this day, Typhoon Irma. And um, before we were even away from the breakwater, we just got the lines across. I could still see the pier. I was seasick, Beverly. Oh. I said, "How am I going to make it as a Navy officer <laughs> if I can't? If I'm a, if I'm seasick and we aren't even out in, in blue water yet." So my department head took me up to the bridge to meet the commanding officer, and I literally puked my guts out right there on the bridge. Oh, it was no. embarrassing. And I said, they're getting ready to, I said, they're getting ready to throw me overboard. And the commanding officer looked at me, laughed, and said, well, you've been initiated. Go change your shirt. You've got the next watch. And over the next, over the next six months of that deployment, I, I literally traveled the world. I never really had a chance to, to be outside of the United States, and we went from the Philippines to Hong Kong to um, Singapore to to um, uh, Sydney and Perth, Australia, and Hobart down on the island wow. of Tasmania, and um, back up through the Indian Ocean and to Japan and, and Thailand and all of these different places and meeting all these different people. And so what really helped me was there was uh, there were senior enlisted personnel, and the enlisted personnel are usually people with high school degrees. The officers have college degrees, and these enlisted people took me under their wing. And I had a senior chief who was who was one of the most senior enlisted personnel, and he said, "I know you don't know what you're doing, but we're going to get you up to speed. You're responsible for these 40 people in your division, and they expect you to know what you're doing." 
So we're going to get you up to see. You met the requirements to get in here. We're going to get you up to the other part. And so what I have to say is throughout my Navy career and throughout other places where I've experienced some modicum of success, there have always been people who were willing to help. Now, there were, people, there were good people who were willing to help, who served as very good examples. There were great officers that I met. There were people who were average. There were people who were below average, and there were even a few assholes. But for the most part, Bev, everybody wanted to assist because they realized that if we're in this together as a team, if we don't get you up to speed to stand your watches, that means there's going to be more work on everybody else. You met the requirements. You have, you're supposed to be here. We just need to be sure you're up to speed. And so I've taken that as a lifelong lesson to say that anytime I can help someone else, I'm willing to do that. Now, every now and then, as I said, you'll get burned. There'll be people that you place your trust in and you're trying to assist in, and they don't quite reciprocate. But for the most part, you can never go wrong by helping someone else. And as I explained to you, there were these people who had nothing more than a formal education through high school that I learned I, so much I couldn't from. agree with you more. And when I look at my own path, um, in, including as a mentor, some of the um, young folks who years ago I had an opportunity to help in some small way and it was easy for me, but you know I made a little effort to reach out. Years later, they still remember, and they became my mentors, or they became my clients, or they sent business, or they're still in my life, some of them, and they're teaching me all the time. So taking advantage of every opportunity to help a little bit, and, and then creating a culture where that's the expectation, that we help each other, that really seems like... There's a famous quote by um, Booker T. Washington. He says, excellence is to do a common thing Oh, I love that. I love that. We'll be back with Bev after this brief message. The Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University is having an impact today while providing innovative education for tomorrow's leaders. The master's program in public administration and environmental studies leads students to greatness in nonprofit, environmental, public sector, and government settings. Learn to lead at the Voinovich School. We're now accepting applications. Information is available at ohio.edu backslash Voinovich School. You alluded to your modicum of success. I would say modicum is a very self-deprecating word here. You've had considerable success. I, I think uh, being a, a leader um, in diversity and inclusion, and not one, but five global companies, that's pretty amazing. Now, how did you get from being in the Navy and thinking about teamwork and leadership to gradually moving um to where you are today, which is you're a leader in DNI, and you have, I think, a, a really important message about an outcome focus. How, what was your transition like from the Navy to where you are now? 
Yeah, when I got back from that first deployment and had returned from subsequent deployments on other ships, I was always amazed that we were able to do so much as we went to these various places around the world representing the United States and, and working with other militaries around the world and meeting other civilians and, and all, of these, all of these very diverse people. And I looked around the ship when we got back to our home port and said, wow, how did we do that? And, and, and I realized it was because of all of those diverse people on the team. There were so many people from so many different backgrounds not just in terms of their education, but in terms of areas that they had come from. Some people had come from places all over the United States. People were there from other places in the world who were immigrants and, and were all there to support the mission of that unit, of that ship, of that division, of that department. And um, if you think about the Navy SEALs, they even have it in their moniker. Their official moniker is that they're team, SEAL Team 1, SEAL Team 6. Um, so... I wanted to find something that would give me that same feeling of teamwork and yet the ability to, to, to be expeditionary, not to be stuck in an office, but to be moving around and interacting with people. And I ended up in pharmaceutical sales. In fact, I think that it was, it was the perfect segue for me because I wasn't in an office. I was out interacting with physicians and with healthcare providers and with patients. And, and at my first pharmaceutical company, we got a medicine that was um, approved to be used in the treatment of palliative treatment of prostate cancer in men. And as I was going through my training on this molecule, I was surprised to learn that African-American men have a 60% greater incidence of prostate cancer than the general population. And I immediately went back to the other managers in the company and said, look, we need to be spending more time with black physicians. They've got to be seeing more of these patients than anyone else. And I was a little shocked at the feedback I got. Well, Julius, those physicians are in the less desirable geographical areas of town. Their patients are compliant. They don't want to see sales reps. They don't even pay their bills on time. And I'm saying, what are you talking about? Two of the African-American urologists that I know personally are professors at medical school. So I learned a valuable lesson then, which is even though my instincts may be right, my gut is pointing in the right direction, I still need empirical data so that everyone else in the organization sees that we're on the right track. So I got permission from the vice president of sales of the company to do a demonstration project, and, to, and I targeted three African-American urologists, and my goal was to convert 30% of their patients to our medicine. And I got all sorts of information about their patient populations, what stages of cancer they were presenting with, how they were treating patients. And within six months, they had not only converted 30% of their patients to our medicine, they converted every eligible patient who fit the parameters to go on this, this unique treatment for prostate cancer that we had. So then, um, with that success, a decision was made to roll the strategy I put together out nationally. And it was more than just increased calls on these doctors. We were supporting them at symposia they were presenting at. We were doing a lot of education in underserved communities and providing a lot of prostate cancer screens for at-risk populations. Within 12 months of rolling this out nationally, this group of doctors is driving almost 20% of the total sales of the medicine. So um, at the time, African-American urologists were less than 4% of the total urology population in the United States. The numbers, unfortunately, haven't changed much. So less than 4% of the targeted market was driving almost 20% of the total sales of the medicine. 
<laughs> Beverly, I knew I finally hit the nail on the head. But everybody in the company took yes. credit for our success, especially the people who had initially been skeptical. But the point I'm making is think about what I did and think about what I didn't do. What I did was I gathered empirical data. I put together a strategy. I put together a small, passionate team to execute the strategy. I communicated. I communicated, and then I communicated some more so that all of the people on the leadership team knew what to expect, what kind of progress we were making, what what we were doing in terms of unit sales. And then, in the end, the ultimate measure was we increased market share, we drove unit sales, we, in other words, drove an enterprise-wide outcome for the entire organization. And um, after this was done, the president of the company asked me to formalize a diversity strategy for the organization. And, and the thing that was, that was really interesting is within three years, we had tripled the number of people of color in key roles in sales, marketing, training, um, sales management, and we doubled the number of women from 30% to 60%. All of that was accomplished because there was now an intrinsic understanding across the organization as to why it was important to pay attention in a very deliberate way to what our workforce representation was. Oftentimes, what I see people doing is they focus on diversity programs or diversity training without thinking about what the organization is trying to accomplish in terms of outcome. The other thing I want you to pay attention to is what I did not do as I told you that story. I never used the words diversity or inclusion. I talked about driving results for the business. And yet, everything that I just did was firmly grounded in foundational principles of diversity and inclusion. That is brilliant. (laughs) And um, let's talk a little bit about how somebody else can use your lesson. These days, since you were pioneering some of this, there's been a lot of research about why diversity and inclusion programs, if they're successful, are really good for the bottom line because a diverse, inclusive uh, Mm -hmm. workplace is one that's more likely to be innovative. It has marketing advantages. There are all kinds of possibilities for uh, broadening the knowledge base. There's research that shows that this does support the bottom line. But I think people sometimes... um, have become convinced that DNI is a good thing, but they still perhaps don't have the vaguest idea how to begin. So if you're uh, going into an organization, and maybe some of our listeners are, are in organizations like this, where there's been a kind of a theoretical shift, oh, you know, this might actually be a useful thing, but people don't know how to begin. Mm-hmm. And, and, and somebody really cares about it and wants to be a change agent, what would you suggest for them as a beginning point to um, bring about some of this change? Yeah, um, I think that um, one of the challenges now is when I started, I was I was reporting into the president of the company or one of the major business unit heads or the CEO in some cases. Um, as I continued to move through my career doing this work, the roles began to be placed in the HR department. Now, that's not necessarily a showstopper, but the chief HR officer has to have a very um, good grasp of the business of the organization, and they need to be sure that they um, empower the chief diversity officer to build relationships of trust with the key business leaders. Oftentimes, I see the diversity officers who are in the HR department 
not moving outside of the of the lines of demarcation of the HR department. The, the person who's leading the diversity strategy has to really be strategic and has to take time to build key relationships of trust with the, with the senior leaders in the organization. So as I do this work, I like to think of it in terms of not only the workforce, but the workplace and the marketplace. So first and foremost, the person who's leading the diversity effort has to really be a strategic thinker. And it often helps if the job itself is reporting into um, one of the senior leaders in the organization who is respected. If possible, the CEO, if not one of the business unit heads, even if it's the chief HR officer, that person who's leading the HR efforts has to support their diversity officers so that they have the connections they need throughout the enterprise to really move a strategy forward. The second thing is the CEO of the organization has to really be supportive and has to be willing to listen um, and to align this with the business of Just the organization. Just want to uh, repeat, two themes are you have to understand what the goals are and the, everything about the organization because you mm-hmm. can't be strategic if you don't do the homework. And the other thing is there's got to be a way to get support from the top, right? The other thing, which is something that you talk about, quite a bit in your work, Beverly, is you have to understand the organization's culture. Um, I often compare culture to to water. Again, another Navy analogy. Sometimes the water is clear and clean. Um, sometimes it's shallow. Sometimes it's deep. Sometimes it's muddy. And, and you're trying to move through this water, um, and you're trying to understand the temperature of the water, and you have to understand how to swim in these different conditions. So organizational culture is critically important to the success of someone who's trying to create a strategic approach to diversity and inclusion. Uh, the other thing that I um, like to remind people of is I tell people all the time, I say, I don't do diversity programs. I drive outcomes based on foundational principles of diversity and inclusion. So we've got to stop thinking about doing this in a programmatic way or going into the diversity training or to create employee resource groups and, again, think about how to make this manageable, scalable, tangible. And that fun. makes sense. And, by the way, I love that your, your second graphic image of going through the culture is water. And I'll point out to you as a Navy man, that's another water image. And that's, they're very, very compelling. Yeah, it is. And, and oftentimes what we do is we say that people are our greatest asset and we end up just throwing them into the water, off in the deep end of the pool and say, okay, learn how to swim. And in a lot of organizations, you don't even have to learn how to swim. You just have to flop around long enough not to drown and they pull you out and say, okay, you're promoted. Um, the point is to be sure that you have people who are, if you're more deliberate in your approach, you're not going to just have a bunch of Olympic swimmers, but you're going to have some people who do well in the middle of the pool, some people who do well in the shallow end of the pool. But the point is you're not drowning anybody. You want to find a place for everyone based on their abilities and based on what your critical goals and objectives are. Well, focusing are. on the people, um, it brings us to maybe my final question here. I, I think that that's so clearly your focus. It kind of comes through and all you've written and all you do. And a theme from your book is that 
relationships are, are really the way everything gets done. So as, as kind of mm-hmm. final advice for our listeners, um, let me ask, I agree with you, relationships, relationships, relationships. That's where you work if you don't know what you're doing. But I talk to lots of, uh, of folks in programs or clients who kind of agree with that in theory, but they feel like they're not relationship people and they don't know how to connect and they think that won't work for them. Do you have any advice for people who who aren't uh, thinking of themselves as natural relationship builders and how they might get started? Yeah, most of us aren't, aren't natural relationship builders. It's something that we have to work at. But I often... Um, I often compare what I do to, um, I remind people, um, I say, take a look at the, at the Godfather, the movie The Godfather, and, and pay close attention to the character that was portrayed by um, 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 Robert Duvall. Robert Duvall played the family's attorney. His name was Tom. He was the adopted son. And for, for those people who are listening that haven't seen the movie, get it, take a look at it. There are lots of lessons. In, in the movie, and it's a pretty good movie, too. But anyway, Tom was the family's attorney, and he went around. He wasn't an attorney in the conventional sense of the word. His job was to go around and pull people together to be sure things were getting accomplished, to um, to lean people in the right direction, and they often referred to him as the consigliere. And I often say, that's what I am. I'm a diversity consigliere. I'm there to sort of lean people in the right direction, to talk to them, to understand what their hopes, fears, and aspirations are, to be sure that they understand that this is going to ultimately benefit them and that everything that we're doing is going to benefit the organization. So I'm trying to help them see the whistle, the what's in it for them, uh, what's in it for me. And I want to be sure that I'm not just developing relationships, but developing relationships of trust. And oftentimes that requires that we speak less yeah. and listen more. So it's something that I've been constantly working on. You talk less and you listen. You ask those people, what are your hopes? What are your fears? What are your aspirations? What drives you? Tell me about your family. Tell me what you do for fun. You know, you're trying to make a connection. And ultimately, that's what we all want to do. As human beings, we want to have a connection. This isn't human capital management. This is connecting to people. I think that's a wonderful final note. I, you're absolutely on the money, and you're so good at it, too, at connecting with people. Thank you so much for joining me today. I, I think we have a lot of things to, to talk about in the future as well, but it was great to have you here today. Bev, this has been fantastic. It's been my pleasure. And thank you for all that you do every day. You're out there knocking a lot of walls now. And uh, we really appreciate the work that you do. Today we've been talking with Julius Pryor III about how effective diversity and inclusion efforts must be aligned with an organization's broader goals and strategies. Today's career tip is that if you want to be a change agent at work, you need to understand what your employer is all about. Change efforts are more likely to succeed when they're grounded in a deep understanding of the company's mission and objectives. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Beverly Jones. 
author of Think Like an Entrepreneur, Act Like a CEO. If you have questions or suggestions for our show, please let us know. You can write to me directly at Beverly E. Jones at me.com. That's B-E-V-E-R-L-Y-E-J-O-N-E-S at me.com. Thank you.